Let's jump right in. We're kicking off a sermon series about prayer. Um, and let's be honest. Let's not like pretend, because sometimes church can be a place where it's easy to pretend that things are better than they really are, because we know we have to hold ourselves to a certain standard. But let's be honest, if, uh, if we're talking about prayer, I knew I'd get up here and I'd be like, hey, we're doing this sermon series about prayer, and I knew that like a, a ripple of, of negative emotions would probably go throughout the room. Uh, not because we don't like prayer, we don't want to know more about prayer, but because there's a couple of emotions that we associate with prayer, maybe particularly our prayer lives. And prayer lives. And this is particularly true if you grew up in church and you have some sense of what prayer is and what your expectations are with regard to prayer. So for a lot of us, there is a, maybe not this word, but this, this sensation comes into our minds when we think about prayer, and it's, it's this word. It's guilt. And the reason we have that, now some of you are like, no, 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 I pray for, you know, six hours a day and, and I'm, I'm great. You know, God listens to me, direct line, you know, it's, I say all the right words. But for a lot of you, there's this, this sense of guilt because you feel like, and believe me, I'm not speaking to you because this is me, we feel like we don't pray often enough, right? We don't pray often enough. It's, it, it happens before meals, <laughs> you know, it happens if we're about to go on a long road trip and we're a little worried about the other drivers on the road, but we don't pray often enough, and then we worry because our prayers aren't necessarily long enough. You know, we, we hear about Jesus praying all night, and then here we are like 10 minutes in, and we're checking our watch, and we're like, man, I don't know if I can keep this rolling. I don't know, all night stuff, this is a little, little ridiculous. So I, I think we don't think we pray often enough, and we certainly don't feel like we pray long enough. So I've been preparing for this message series for, you know, for a couple of months, and I've been reading these books, and a lot of them are called just prayer. So if you look up a book about prayer and it's called prayer, you're like, oh, this is, this is going to be good, right? It's just, it just says what it is right in there. And in these books, particularly one by a guy named Philip Yancey, if you're, if you're interested, a very, very good book, but he writes about these, these uh, historical Christians who were kind of known for their prayer lives. And in particular, he writes about a couple different people, like, uh, for example, names you've heard of, uh, like Martin Luther. Uh, he prayed for three times, or not for three, he prayed for three hours a day. Three hours a day he prayed. That's a lot of prayer, right? Um, John Wesley, actually, I have a picture of him up here. John Wesley, uh, pretty well-known guy, started a pretty big movement within uh, Christendom, um, and he was quoted as saying, I think very little of a man who does not pray for four hours a day. Now, you hear that, and you're like, okay, well, I'm out. Like, I got stuff to do. I got other things in my life. You know, I, if that's the standard by which we measure ourselves as, you know, followers of Jesus, then I'm, I'm done for. You remember how many of you, if you grew up around the church, you remember the hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer? I remember as a teenager thinking, God is just going to strike me dead because I did not spend a sweet hour of anything in prayer. Like this, you know, maybe 15 minutes if, if I'm lucky. And so there's this sense of guilt, for me, a pervading sense of guilt with regard to prayer. And I think that's probably true for a lot of us in the room because we feel like my prayer life should have more depth and it should be longer. And maybe you've tried praying at night. You've tried, you know, ending your day in prayer and you lay your head down on your pillow and you're like, I'm going to pray and you start and pretty soon you're sawing logs, right? There's better uh, or worse ways rather to fall asleep, but you're like, I, I didn't, I, you know, I fell asleep on God. Like that can't be good, right? Or maybe you've decided I'm going to get up early and I'm going to pray because that's what I think God would do. It talks about Jesus in the book of Luke. It talks about he rose very early in the morning. It's, the Bible says very early in the morning. 
And then, you know, you set your alarm, and you're like, I'm going to do this. And then the siren call of that snooze button, and then again and again, and pretty soon you're just on with your day. And I think for a lot of us, there's this, it, prayer comes with at least a little bit of a sense of guilt. Now, for me in particular, it wasn't just guilt, but for me, there's another word that I would associate with prayer that I think is, again, maybe a common experience, and it's this word, confusion. Because I didn't, I, I didn't, don't often understand, like, how does this work? But God, you said you, you, you know what we need before we even ask, but we still have to ask for some reason. Like, why don't you just give us what you need? Why don't we just skip the whole asking portion? Uh, or maybe fasting is something that you've wondered about because the Bible talks about this fasting. Does, does fasting, does not eating food somehow supercharge our prayers? And so, like, it gives them a little bit of energy boost so they can get all the way up to God, but if you don't fast, they don't quite get there. Like, what is, what is fasting? What does not eating food have to do with prayer? And, and I know that there's lots of thoughts that people have had and lots of answers that people have, but I've been puzzled by prayer. Like, what, is, what, what do we do? What is this? What, why do we do this? Why do we say this in, in this certain way? And of course, if you grew up around church, like, you probably grew up in an environment in which you could probably quote the prayers as they were being prayed because they often got routine. Like, they would call on brother so-and-so and you'd be like, oh, he's going to say, Lord, probably 70 times in this prayer. It's just a filler word. And you know he's going to start with uh, Father in heaven. And then you know he's going to end with in Jesus' name, amen. And we just throw a little bit of our own stuff in there and kind of mix it all up. And we just hope something happens. For me, prayer has been confusing. That's a confession. I'm not saying that it's a good thing, but it's been confusing because I don't understand what, what is this relationship? Why do I have to say these things to a God who already knows everything and already knows what I need and already knows what I'm thinking? What, what is this about? In fact, if it really gets, and I'm not trying to make a bleak picture of prayer here, but I think I want to uh, tap in, cast a wide net, and tap into a lot of our common experiences when it comes to prayer. Because I think that there's something important that we have to get at that maybe many of us have kind of languished without much of a prayer interaction with God for years. So I want to do something, and I want you to just kind of call to mind some of the verses having to do with prayer that you can think of. And what we're going to do for just a minute is we're just going to rip those verses right out of their context and we're going to create this patchwork theology of prayer. These are the verses that come into your mind when you're thinking about what do I got to do when I pray. So you might be thinking of a verse like in, in the book of Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, where Jesus says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling right? Don't keep talking. Don't make a show of lengthy prayers. And you can think about, oh yeah, man, I remember Uncle so-and-so. We'd go to over to his house for a meal uh, Sunday afternoon, and the food would be cold by the time he got done with that prayer. We were praying for everybody and their uncle and their brother and other countries. Like, do not babble on in your prayers. Okay, I can get behind that. That's straight from the words of the mouth of Jesus. But then, Luke six twelve, Jesus prayed all night, and Luke 18, 1, pray and do not give up. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Well, which, which one is it? Do I pray all night or do not keep babbling on in my prayers? Because at some point, if I'm praying all night, there's probably going to be some filler here. What do I do? Or maybe you think about like, oh, those verses that talk about these deep, important promises when it comes to prayer. Matthew 21, 22, if you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask. And, uh, and those of you in, the, you know, in church are smart enough to know, well, it's probably not whatever, right? Not whatever, but those are the words that Jesus said. Whatever you ask, John 14, 14, you may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. I have tried that. Anything. God, you said anything, right? 
I've tried that. But then somebody will remind me of James chapter 4, verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Well, well yeah. Yeah, when I prayed for that new car or that money or whatever, yeah, yeah, my pleasures had to do a little bit with it. I probably tried to convince God, like, yeah, I'm going to spend the money, I'm going to give it to charity, and I'll give people rides to church in my new car. But it, yeah, sure, it had to do with my pleasures. But you said, whatever, God. John chapter 9, verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but then John would later write in 1 John 1, 18, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. So you're not listening to me, but if I claim not to have sin, then you're not listening to me, so I'm a liar, like, this is, what do we do with this? These are all, now I understand these are all ripped out of context, and I hope you understand that as well. And there are ways to navigate through these verses, and I know some of you are sitting, just itching to raise your hand and answer some of this right now. You're like, well, this is, this is how it works. But I want you to understand and at least be able to acknowledge that prayer can be, for many of us, confusing, even based on what we read in Scripture. It can be confusing about what does God expect from us with regard to prayer. It's puzzled me. I've had many questions over the years. So here's what I did with all these verses. I created three rules of prayer as gleaned from a woeful misuse of the scriptures. Number one, do not pray for a long time, but pray all the time. Number two, pray for what you want, but only if it's what God wants, because if you pray your own wants, he won't give you what you want. Number three, God won't listen to sinners. If you don't admit you're a sinner, then you're lying, which is also a sin. So, checkmate. Those are the three rules of prayer. This is the struggle with prayer that I have when I stop and I'm like, okay, God, I want you to listen to my needs and help and do and fix and whatever. Even even good prayers like, thank you for this and I praise you for this. These are the things that come into my mind and I'm like, what what is going on? What do I do? How how do I work through this? How do I figure out? And it doesn't even get into other questions about is God really going to change his mind if God intends to do this and I come to him in prayer? Is he really going to change his mind and isn't what he wants to do anyway? And so most of our prayers end up being sort of these sort of weak and God, do whatever you want. I'm going to do whatever I want, and we'll just go on with our day. God, how does that sound? And that, for many of us, is the summation of our prayer life. For me, it's the summation of what often my prayer life has been. God, I guess you do what you think is right, and I'll, I'll you just let me know if I need to change something here or there, but we'll, we'll get it figured out, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 26, even Paul says this, we do not know how to pray as we should. We do not know how to pray as we should. Totally agree with Paul here. I do not know how to pray as I should. God, how, how do I pray? And, and it, it paints a bit of a confusing picture about prayer. And I know for some of you, you're like, wait a second, I, suppose, I thought we were going to come away all inspired about praying. And you're showing us all these confusing and difficult verses. But prayer is presented as a central part of our relationship to God, but it's often experienced as difficult, confusing, and if we are being perfectly honest, which is dangerous to do on a Sunday morning from a stage, it's often boring. Oh, Patrick, you just went too far. Prayer is boring. I am telling you my experience with prayer. If I was a 16-year-old kid and somebody was like, hey, we're going to go pray for four hours, I would be like, no, thank you. That sounds awful. Boring. And again, maybe I'm being too honest here. Maybe we shouldn't actually talk about what people are experiencing when they, when they think about their prayer lives. But, but this is what I thought, is that prayer was only for a few super-Christians like John Wesley and some of you in the room, because some of you, this is not your experience at all. Some of you are like, I wake up wide awake at 3.30 a.m. and I'm just ready to go in prayer and, you know, praising Jesus. But for many of us, for me, this has been a 
guilt-ridden, confusing part of my relationship with God. It really has. And so when I began this process of studying for it, I mean, I was hungry to know what God wanted from me with regard to prayer. It's a central part of my relationship with God. What does God want from me? So I don't want to speak for you, but I want you to just be honest with yourself about where your prayer life is. If it's awesome, if it's John Wesley-like, great, fantastic. Then Talk to somebody else or go pick some prayer requests off the wall and pray for those things because God is listening to you more than the rest of us. But if it's not, I want to just, I just want to offer maybe your prayer life has been a little bit like, I think there, there's three ways for those of us that settle in our prayer life, there's three ways that it kind of manifests itself. Number one is sort of a daily routine. We do it. It's like brushing our teeth. We do it because we're supposed to do it. We're not sure if it's really going to save us from cavities or having to go to the dentist, but we do it because that's just what we're supposed to do. But it's not, there's no, there's no life or vibrancy or vitality in our prayer lives. For some of you, your prayer life is like a lottery ticket. You think, I throw up a few prayers here and there. That's my version of pray without ceasing. If God answers, great. If not, I'm only out a few bucks. No big deal. Not a problem. No big deal. I'm not investing too much in it. I'm not getting down on my knees and begging God to answer a prayer because if I do, I'm opening myself up to God not doing what I'm asking him to do and then I'm gonna have some serious questions about God is and what he can do or maybe my own faith. So it's just kind of like a lottery ticket. Like, I'll just throw it out. Hey, who knows, right? May happen, but I'll keep it simple. And then I think for many people in the room, it's just quietly, we don't advertise this, but it's just quietly not part of our discipleship. We don't tell people that, but it's just kind of keep it on the down low and we pray here and there or we thank God when we think about it, but it's just quietly not a central part of our relationship to God. And if we're not careful, because it's experienced as difficult, confusing, and boring, if we're not careful, prayer can easily slip into a peripheral role in our discipleship. And I, I want to submit to you as, as, as fellow Christians on this spiritual journey that that is not good enough for us. That's not good enough for us. That's not good enough for me. It's not good enough for me to go throughout my walk with Christ feeling guilty and confused about what prayer is. It's not good enough. And so I believe, and I, I said this earlier, I truly believe that we will see God when we seek him, particularly when we seek him in prayer. I believe that. But I have to believe that on faith because there's so much about it that I don't understand. However, what we're going to do is we're going to explore one passage of Scripture, um, and we're going to kind of look at it from a, diff, a, a few different angles. But I want you to know this particular passage of Scripture is pretty important with regard to prayer. Because when we think about prayer, we think about all these different verses from all over the Bible, Old Testament. You think about Psalms and these beautiful prayers that David wrote, poetic prayers to God. We think about those kinds of things. Uh, but there's only one place in Scripture, and feel free to, to correct me if I'm wrong, where the Bible presents like, here is how you pray. Here it is. Here's black and white. Here's the blueprint. Here's the ink on the page. Here is how you pray. There's only one place in Scripture where God offered us that sort of direct, clear advice. There's plenty of references and examples and, 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 and verses about prayer, but there's only one verse where the Son of God said, here is how it's done. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. He goes, and when you pray. Now, 
Before we move too far along here, there is some really valuable context that I find incredibly fascinating that I think we have to have when we think about what Jesus is about to say. This reference, this text of Scripture, is right in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And it's like just the greatest collection of Jesus' teachings. And one of the things he teaches about is prayer. And he, right in the middle of this, when you pray, and he gives us this example of how to do it. But we need to know that their relationship with prayer was very different than ours 2,000 years later. It was very different than ours. For example, they would pray three times a day, particularly in the morning and at night, uh, but in the afternoon they would have a different one. But they would pray in the morning, they would pray this prayer called the Shema prayer, which was the, the word Shema is Hebrew for listen. And, and we translate it here. And so they would pray that song we just sang, Hear, O Israel. And they would pray like, hey, listen, God is one God. All these other crazy nations, they believe in all these crazy gods, but our God is one God. And we love him with all our heart and our soul and our mind. That was the prayer they prayed. That was the thing that anchored them in the morning, afternoon, and evening. They prayed that prayer. And so when Jesus is speaking to the context of prayer, it's not just like we, we, we have this relationship with prayer where we're just like, well, I say prayers here before my meals. And Jesus did that. We have examples of that. But it's not that. This was the bones. This was the framework. This was the structure of their prayer relationship with God. Just a fun little tidbit for those of you that like to geek out on Scripture a little bit. In the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it talks about the apostles devoting themselves to breaking bread, fellowship. The word in there where it talks about they devoted themselves to prayer, the word is literally, and I don't know why the translators made this decision, but it is a plural and it has a definite article in front of it. So they devoted themselves to the prayers. Sounds a little bit different than what we might think. In fact, seven verses later in Acts chapter 3 verse 1, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer to offer the prayers. And so I kind of wonder if Jesus was offering them this example of prayer that was supposed to anchor them throughout the day as they prayed, because their relationship, their prayer relationship was something that happened in the morning, at noon, and night. In fact, the reason you get the texts at 9 a.m. is because that was the example that we have. I thought, you know, hey, what's a biblical time to send these texts? 9 a.m., time of prayers. Uh, That sounds good to me. Let's do that. So they had this framework of daily prayers. I think that's kind of cool, and I think it's interesting to think about Acts 2.42, how they devoted themselves to the prayers, the prayers, these prayers that the Hebrew people have been praying for thousands of years. So, They had this practice, and this is what Jesus was speaking into. So he goes, he begins to teach him, and when you pray, and then he says two words that just kind of blow me away. When you pray, do not. Why are you starting off with the do nots? Like, just give us a good basic example of prayer, and then we'll we'll go from there. When you pray, do not. And I think this is so fascinating, because Jesus had this crowd gathered to whom he's speaking, and he's talking about this daily fundamental interaction with God that somehow people, or they had examples of people doing it wrong. I have heard preachers and teachers say there's no wrong way to pray, not according to Jesus. There is a wrong way to pray, and here's what you do not do. Okay, well, I'm kind of tuned in. And what he's talking about is a shift that needs to take place to understand what prayer was and was not. How many of you would rather uh, receive a text than receive a call? Yeah, all right, we, we just divided the room uh, by age here. And how many of you would be like, just call me? This texting business is ridiculous. Yeah, all right. I, there's the generational thing here with a few exceptions there, uh, here and there. All right, so 
this is so funny because I feel like I bridge the divide a little bit. You're like, there's part of me who like, I'll text somebody and they'll call me back and I'm like, why are you calling me back? I texted you. Clearly, I don't want to talk to you on the phone or I would have called you, but whatever. So I feel like I bridge this divide just a little bit, but everybody has different texting etiquette. You know what I mean? Different texting etiquette, which means I think if you're over a certain age, I don't know what that age is, but if you're over a certain age, you text with proper capitalization and commas and punctuation. If you are under a certain age, it is the wild, wild west. You just do whatever you want, and we're supposed to figure it out. What all you, you don't even write words out. You just use letters for entire words, and we don't know what you're talking about. I literally sometimes have to go to the internet and search, what does that combination of letters mean? Because I don't know. What does that mean? SMH? I hope it's not something bad. Oh, shaking my head. Okay, I did, I did something. Okay, I, I'm getting it. But it's the Wild West. So, in fact, without naming any names, I was helping someone in my family, who was born post the year 2000, and I was helping them compose a text for a sensitive situation they were dealing with some, some friends at school. So I think, well, just give me the phone, I will type it out, and then I will give it back, and you can send what I, what, what I wrote out, because what I wrote out is thoughtful and wise, and you should send that. And so I type it out, and I send it back, and they retype the whole thing. What are you doing? And they've said this to me. It looks like an old person typed it. <laughs> and if by old you mean using proper writing habits, then yes, I am old. I, I am, in my texting etiquette, I am a user of unnecessary exclamation points. Because, and this is why, and this is very important, this is important to take 30 seconds and talk about this from the stage at church. Because with a text, you cannot communicate body language. And so if I end everything with an exclamation point, you know that means I'm happy. And I want you to know that I am happy. That's my, it's very important to me. You cannot understand, you cannot communicate body language in a text, right? So in my texting relationship with Kareen, we have this texting etiquette. We, this, is, this is the way we do things. And so I know if certain things don't appear in the text that, that she may be communicating something to me subtly between the lines. Do you know what I mean? Let me give you an example. <clears throat> uh, so I have screenshots here that I want to show you. <laughs> oh, man. Pray for me. All right. So, so this is, this is uh, me from my wife. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm here in the office and I'm thinking, hey, I just want to check in and, and see how things are going. So I, I send this text, hey, exclamation point, right? It's very important. How's your day going, right? Your, Y-O-U-R, not Y-O apostrophe R-E, right? All that kind of stuff. How's your day going? This is, this is what I get back. Good. That's not good. There's no capitalization. There's no punctuation. If she had even put a period, I could know, well, oh, well, she's not overjoyed, but she's not mad. But there's nothing. There's nothing. And I'm like, now some of you, this is par for the course for some of you. So sometimes when you text people, you don't realize it, but you're communicating to other people that you're upset at them. And you don't realize that, but I know. How exhausting must it be to text me, right? That's what you're thinking right now. What a pain. No wonder I call. There's too much drama going on. Can't deal with the politics. So, so I get this text back good, and I'm like, oh boy, that's, that's not good, no capital. Maybe she's just preoccupied. I want to assume the best. 
right? Want to assume the best. I'm going to give this another shot. I'm going to throw out another innocuous question and see what happens, see what I get back. So I write, any plans for lunch? Question mark. All properly capitalized, all that sort of thing. It's good, it's simple. This is the response I get. Oh no, it's bad. It's worse than I thought. This is bad news. Because, it's good. And, and what I am interpreting, I know some of you are like, you are ridiculous, Patrick. I get it. But what I am interpreting is like, she doesn't even have enough time to capitalize or, or punctuate this text. She must be steamed at me. There must be something I did that's wrong. And I'm going through the files thinking, what? What did I do? What did I do? What did I not do? Uh-oh. So I think, you know what? All right. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go the direct route, right? Communication, right? That's what they tell us is the key to healthy marriage, communication. I'm going to say, uh, hey, this is the next, next slide. Hey, I'm getting one-word answers, kind of getting a vibe that something's up. Now, I want to leave it open in case something is not up. Kind of, you know, getting a vibe here. Eh, I don't know what's going on, right? I felt like this was a good way to like, hey, let's open up the doors of communication. Let's like, let's work this out. Did I do something bad? Did I, did I leave? Did I not do something I was supposed to do? Did, what, what happened? And this is what I got back from Crean's phone. It is Liam. Now, you guys, you guys are smarter than me, because when I saw that, I was like, oh, Kareen's upset at Liam. I see. That's the, no. What had happened was, is Liam had not been feeling well, and so he had stayed home from school, and he had his mother's phone, and I was texting with my six-year-old son. That completely explains the lack of grammar and capitalization. It totally makes sense. I get it now. It doesn't mean anything bad's happening here. It doesn't mean that I'm on the rocks or I'm on the outs. It means that I'm texting with my six-year-old. It is a big mental shift in my interaction here, right? It's a big mental shift. And I'm thankful that I didn't get more worked up and say something more rude or mean because I would have been assuming things that weren't true. Now, this is important. When I understand to whom I am speaking, it makes a huge difference in how I interact with them. When I understand to whom I am speaking, it makes a huge difference in how I interact with that person. And so Jesus starts off with these instructions on how to pray with do not because he's pointing to a mental shift that needs to take place in your prayer life. He's pointing to a mental shift because our prayers are similar to us texting and we're getting back these responses or lack of responses and we don't understand. We're reading into the text something that may or may not be true. We need to go through a mental shift in our interactions with God and that is exactly what Jesus is pointing out in this passage. This is so important. So Matthew chapter 6 verse 5, and when you pray, do not... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So they were spending that morning routine of their prayer or that lunchtime routine of their prayer. They were waiting till traffic was heavy and then they would stand out there on the street corner and they would lift their arms and they would pray to God and they would thank God that they were not like all these other ridiculous people who hadn't stopped to pray. And it wasn't about, they weren't talking to God. 
And Jesus is like, if you're going to pray, first of all, you should be talking to me. You shouldn't be using this for your own self-aggrandizement, right? And it's the first century equivalent of us trying to get likes on our Instagram or Facebook posts because we're doing something spiritual, right? It's the same exact thing. Got to get those likes coming in. And that's all these guys were doing. They were trying to get the likes coming in. And Jesus says, you, you have your reward in full. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. And that's how I want you to pray, unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Real quick, is he talking about hard and fast rules? Do you have to go into your closet and pray? Absolutely not. Did Jesus own a closet? No, he spent most of his time praying outside, in fact, with other people. The Bible frequently says Jesus was by himself with his apostles. And you're like, not by yourself, if you're with your apostles. And he was praying. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's like, hey, make sure you're actually talking to God and you're not just doing this for your own self-fulfillment. I don't know that that's much of a problem for us, but maybe, maybe that hits you in a different way than it hits me. But it, these people were acting for their own sake. They weren't praying. So don't do that, God says. Go into your bedroom, go into your closet, whatever, whatever you need. Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans. Ooh, that sounds bad. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Now the word pagan there is just the word Gentile. He's not talking about, you know, any, anything bigger than like if you were a Gentile person who believed in like Zeus and all the other whatever Roman gods, you didn't believe that those gods cared about you. And so to get those gods' attention, you had to like really butter them up and you had to go on and on about how awesome and amazing they were. And then at the end you could be like, hey, could you also make it rain? Could you bring me a wife? take care of my kids, whatever it is. But it would go on and on because they didn't believe that the character of the gods that they were praying to was the character of someone who actually cared about them. And he says, don't do that. Don't do that. And he says, this is why. Because your father, verse 8, do not be like him. Your father, this is so important, knows what you need before you ask. Your father knows what you need before you ask. And for us, we were like, well, then why do I have to ask? Jesus' point is exactly the opposite. Because God knows what you need before you ask, don't spend a long time in prayer. Pray. But you don't have to spend a long time figuring this out. That's good news for somebody that looks like me, that looks at John Wesley and is like, man, I don't have four hours. What am I supposed to do? And Jesus is like, I don't want four hours. God is listening to your prayers when you go on and on and on saying, wrap it up, buddy. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't babble on. Isn't that so surprising? And then he gives them a model of prayer. Your father knows what you need before asking. We're going we're gonna to look at that model just, just real quick. But I, I want us to understand something. Uh, most of us, many of us, I don't know. I don't want to do a show of hands. But we'll have, um, how many of I, sh I shouldn't say how many. Many of you have a smart speaker in your home. You know what that is, right? The Amazon Echo, I think Google's got a thing. Uh, and most of you, your phone has like this smart and, uh, assistant. And you can speak to your phone and, and your phone will answer. You can ask it to tell you jokes. You can ask it to schedule, uh, put things in your calendar. You can ask it to text. You can ask it to call. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And now they've got these devices that can go in your home and you can put it around your home and you can ask this device to do things in your home. Like I can find out what's the temperature. I can listen to the news. I can have this thing play a song for me. And so for the, the, the device we have is an Amazon Echo and to activate it, you got to say, Alexa, and then you got to ask it what to do. Now, the technology's really good, but it's not quite there yet because sometimes you have to say the right phrase in the right way for Alexa to actually get you to get to do what you want her to do, her, it to do, right? And, and sometimes if you don't say just the right thing in just the right way, she won't 
give you what you want or she'll give you the wrong thing. So you could say like, you know, uh, we use it to play uh, bedtime music at night for, for my little guy when he's sleeping. And so we say, hey, Alexa, play bedtime music. And Alexa will do, never done this exactly, but Alexa will sometimes play the wrong, oh, now playing death metal music. No, 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 no. That's not what I want. No, I don't, stop, stop, Alexa, stop. Because you have to say the right phrase in the right way with the right combination of the words in order to get the response. That is how many of you treat prayer with God. You have to say the right phrase in the right way in order to get the right response as if prayer relied on you and not God. How ridiculous is that? How ridiculous is that? And God says it's not about a lengthy prayer. It's not about saying all the things. And he gives them a prayer that in the original Greek language is 57 words and doesn't include so many things that we think should be included in prayer. But my confusion, this is so important, my confusion about prayer has to do with how prayer works. But God wants me to understand, Jesus rather wants me to understand who the character of God is when I pray. That's what God is interested in me knowing about this prayer relationship. I'm worried about, like, did I do it for long enough? Did I say the right words? And God says, no, you need to know my character. God knows what you need before you even ask. Jesus is telling us that getting God's attention is not about saying the magic word. For a lot of you, have you ever, I've thought this, I forgot to end my prayers with in Jesus' name, amen, and I'm like, well, I mean, that's like the equivalent of hitting the send button on a text. I forgot to send it. It's not the way prayer works. It's not a magic formula. It's not about the mechanics. Listen, it's not about the mechanics of prayer. It's about the character of God. It's about the character of God. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us here. God doesn't hear or respond because I said just the right words in just the right way at just the right time. This is off topic, but Paul goes on to talk about this in Romans chapter 8. He's like, you don't know how to pray. Fortunately, you've got the Holy Spirit that will take those things that you can't figure out and brings them to God in a way that God can figure it out. That's the type of God that we serve. How amazing is that? God hears my prayers because of who he is and where my heart is in relationship to him. All right, real quick, turn the page. Matthew chapter seven. This is later on in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus kind of going on about talking about prayer. And I want you to see this. I think this is so important. We'll wrap this up as quickly as possible. Matthew chapter seven, verse seven. Ask, and it will be given to you. Oh, I like that. That's good. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. I like that. This is the character of God. For everyone who receives or who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks the door will be opened. And then he talks about, this is important for us to know, believers, people who are following me and know, learning about God. Verse 9, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? That's not the character of God. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. Verse 11, if you then, though you are evil. Oof, I don't like that, but he's telling me compared to my heavenly father, I look pretty bad. But if you, even being an evil father that you are, will give good things to your kids, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And this is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand, and this is so simple, so basic. I know it's not a revelation, but this is the shift that needs to take place in our prayer lives, is this. God is a loving father who is eager to do good for you. Well, what about when my prayers don't get answered and I prayed good things and I prayed earnestly and sincerely? Come back in three weeks and we'll talk about unanswered prayers. But we need to know, this is, needs to be our starting point. God is a loving father who is eager to do good for you. Now for some of you, the word father doesn't conjure up good images. You don't have a good association with that. And so when I say father, you're like, I, 
I don't have a point of reference. And, you know, I, 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 I'm sorry for that. That's too bad. I, I wish that weren't the way f- for you. But maybe for a second, for the purposes of what we're talking about here, you can imagine a good father. Imagine a friend's father. Imagine a TV father. Imagine Ward Cleaver or Andy, uh, Andy Taylor on the Andy Griffith Show. Whatever you need to do to understand what God is getting at here. Imagine a good father. If on a lazy Saturday morning, around 10 a.m., my little guy comes up to me and says, Hey, Dad, can we go get a donut? Me, being not a great father but trying, might look at him and say, You know what, buddy? Yes, we can. Let's go get a donut. That'll be fun, little father and son time. Yes. If my son comes up to me on a Tuesday night, right before we're about to sit down for dinner, and says, Hey, Dad, can we get a donut? Me, being a, not a great father, but trying to do my best, will say to him, no. Because that's not what's good for you in this situation. It is the, listen, it is the exact same request. And at one time it will be yes, and another time it will be no. And I'm not a great father, I'm trying, but because I care about my children and what is good for them, I'm going to sometimes, and this is so important, both the yes and the no are my reflections of my attempts to be a good father. The kids may cry, they may argue and complain, they may get mad at me, they may plead, they may say, I will clean my room every day if you answer my prayer with a yes. But my answer isn't about how they asked. It's about who I am and what I believe is good for them. And that is what God is trying to teach you about your heavenly father. So, do we believe God is a God who needs to be buttered up with long, flowery prayers? A God who doesn't care about our best interests? A God who isn't paying attention? A God who will only listen if we ask in a certain way? Or, do we believe that we are praying to a Father who is eager to bring about good in our lives? That's, there's so many questions. But understand, that starting at that place, it doesn't answer all our questions, but it lessens them. It helps us understand the person that we're speaking with, the person we're talking to. He is a good Father from whom every good and perfect gift comes down, the Father of lights. Sometimes his no is an indication of his goodness. All right, let me wrap up. And I want want us to do something together as as we finish. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. And I want us, if you would, for us as a church to recite this prayer together. You know it. Maybe you're so familiar with it, it doesn't have any meaning anymore. But I just want you to know, as we start this journey of prayer, what the, what the, the model, the pattern, the structure that, that Jesus gives us in order to pray to God. So we're going we're gonna to recite this prayer together, if you would, as we wrap up this morning. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is my prayer. May you know, may you believe that you are praying, that you are speaking to a loving Father who is eager to bring about your good. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Uh, as we explore what prayer is, Lord, I know we will not answer all the questions. We will not solve all the problems. But Lord, help us to start here at square one, knowing that you are a good father. I pray that that truth, that conviction will fall on us in this room and that it will transform our prayer lives. Lord, help us to seek you and help us to believe in that promise that we will find you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You're dismissed.